Well, if you've not met, my name is Skylar Adams. I'm the REF campus minister um, that is loved well by you, and I'm grateful for you all. Um, this semester in RUF, we've been looking at um, the book of Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters, um, trying to make sense of how things began, and Lord willing, in his timing, how they'll actually end. Um, so uh, tonight, or this morning, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 4. You're welcome to, to open your Bibles there. Um, and I'm sure it'll be up on the screen once we get there. But I want to remind us of a couple of things before we enter. This is sort of a one-and-done sermon. Obviously, Dave's in Romans, um, and this is not Romans. Uh, but, but I hope that just, just some real quick um, bullet points here will sort of get, our, get us ready um, to read God's Word and, and to hear its wisdom for us. So um, a couple of things I want you to be reminded of. You know these things, but since perhaps you haven't read this book in a while, let me remind you of these things. First, Genesis is the prologue to the Exodus. You need to understand that the audience uh, to which God's word is landing is, is to an Exodus people. We need to understand that the, the book of Genesis is the pilot episode of all of redemptive history. If we're going to understand how the rest of this story works itself out, we have to get this plot right. If you miss it, you're going to miss the Bible. Dave spent a lot of time talking about that on the opposite end as he studied uh, the book of Revelation. So like I said, the, the, these words are landing on the hearts of a fragile, bewildered, and freshly emancipated people. They're confused who's done this rescue, the Exodus, and they're learning why. And God is revealing both himself and the nature of the world to his people that perhaps had forgotten about him. So two things before we read our text. He's intent and keen for us to hear this morning and for his first audience to hear. And that's this. First, God makes beautiful things. Which is to say, the, the, the vandalism, the abuse, the defacement... The corruption, the decay of anything beautiful is not of God. Two, God will not quit. He refuses to give up. He does not wipe his hands upon our disobedience or anything. He is committed. And he wants to teach us that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, um, Genesis chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. He literally became depressed. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he says, I I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word. Let's pray. Spirit, bear witness in our hearts and through your word that Jesus is real, that he's alive, that he has come for us and he's coming back for us. Lord, make yourself known in this text. Connect our hearts to Christ. Grow us up into his image through the ordinary means of this, your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, senseless acts of violence confuse us. Think about over the course of your lifetime, the, the small and big sort of domestic uh, moments of terrorism, right? And, and we, we always want to know, like, what was in the criminal's mind? And, and, and if you're like me, you'll, you'll hear about some atrocity, and you're, you're, you're angry that the tragedy continues and the perpetrator ends up losing their life. What motivated that criminal? If, if you've witnessed or been part of uh, some sort of family breakup, whether it's a, it's a divorce, separation, or some other estrangement in your family, and, and one of the parties has done something to the other, and, and the person who's, who's been done wrong against, they naturally ask questions, why? Why did you do this to me? If you've been in a dating relationship or, or a close friend of yours or even a roommate who, is, who has said or done things about you and, and you, you can't get to the bottom of the story, you're asking, why would you do that? If you have children and for whatever reason, they, they just distrust your love, you ask yourself, why? Questions of motive haunt us because motivation matters. The Bible seems to think so. And I think the question of motive is all over this text. Like, we're desperate to know why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. We want to know why. We think we might know. We want to know why Cain went so far as to murder his brother. And on the surface, I think we can come to some quick conclusions. And we'll begin to say things like this, or, or we'll even take the words of Cain uh, into our hearts and say, God, you, you're not being fair. God, do you see the circumstances of my life and my family's life? You, you're not being fair. 
We want him to be fair. In fact, some of us may have even demanded him to be. But friends, our God is not fair. He's gracious. We think we want God to play fair, but we need him to play graciously. You see, God's fairness toward us east of Eden only leads to separation, isolation, and judgment. Cain was convinced that God was unfair to him. But I think from this text that God shows him and us that fairness would be the worst result for Cain. It'd be the worst result for you and I. So I want us to spend our time this morning considering how God's grace is at work in our lives. And I think we're going to come to the emphatic conclusion that fairness could do none of these things. All right, so he's not fair, but he's gracious, and we need it. So I want us to consider first that his grace gently initiates. Second, that his grace painfully exposes, and finally, that his grace actually saves. It initiates, it exposes, and it saves. Did you notice when God shows up in Cain's life? He moves in trying to cushion Cain's anger. When? Long before he ever asked for help. In fact, the text makes it clear, I think, that Cain can want absolutely nothing to do with God. God moves toward Cain long before he has called. We see this in verse 6. He's not sitting at a distance waiting for Cain to get it right. He's not tapping his foot, as it were, seeing if he'll pass the test. When does he come? Before anyone called. He doesn't wait for Cain to learn the hard way. He's desperate for him not to, unlike you and I. As a kid, I, my curiosity would get the best of me. And my dad used to drive, used to cut the grass with an old snapper lawnmower. The motor was on the back, and I was riding my bike one day, and I kept getting really close to the motor, and, and he said, hey, man, if you touch this, you're really going to get hurt, get burned, or, or something like this. And of course, that didn't seem to um, keep me away, and I, and I just latched on to the muffler of that lawnmower. And so I had a nice bandage for a nice month. And I'll never forget, as that story gets told uh, to me as an adult, it's like, yeah, man, we just, you just had to learn the hard way. Our God does not want us to learn the hard way. Dave has already taught us that he does. We learn that he does give us over as we resist over and over, but he doesn't want it. And you all know this, as you follow Jesus, every testimony of mine and yours is that our God, as Eric reminded us this morning, was at work before we ever called his name. God is gently initiating his love toward Cain. And notice how he tries to wake Cain up in verse 7, verse 6 and 7. I want you to see that he tries to wake Cain up with questions. He doesn't move toward Cain as a teacher. He could. He's not explaining the situation. He doesn't move toward Cain as a prophet. He has the power to condemn Cain's disobedience, and yet he doesn't. He doesn't move toward Cain as some cosmic policeman. He doesn't move toward him in these ways. He moves toward him as a counselor, 
And if you've ever sat in the counselor's chair or you've had a really good friend, one of the things you might say about that really good friend is they ask good questions. They ask probing questions. Why? Are they dumb? No. They're asking, they're inviting you and I to, to, to connect inside of ourselves, to discover. He wants Cain to experience his need. Keller said that he's affirming Cain's ability to get it. In verse 7, these two phrases, Cain, if you do well, and Cain, you must master this. It's as if God is saying, Cain, you've got potential. Do you understand your anger? He's asking gentle questions. This past year, I played softball with one of our students, and I grew up playing a little bit of baseball, but this student had like the scouting report on every single batter um, that, that we would come up against. And I was playing in the outfield, and this student sort of waves at me, hey, Skylar, you need to back up. This guy can really hit the ball. I said, oh, man, I know what I'm doing out here. And um, as you, you already know how this is going to happen, this guy blistered the softball. It sails over my head right into the fence. Here I am looking a fool, running back. The, the inning finally ends, and the student is waving me back in the dugout. And, and I'll never forget, he looks at me and he says, man, why didn't, you, why didn't you listen to me? And before he could even finish the sentence, I looked at him and said, get out of my face! Friends, how quickly do you become defensive about the questions people raise in your life? If you can't hear a friend, a spouse, a roommate, even your child ask you questions and not grow defensive, how are you responding to the the questions our God is asking you and I? Grace is gently initiating. God is gently starting the conversation. Cain's not having it, though, is he? Second, grace painfully exposes. Consider this this, this, this really chilling metaphor in verse 7. It's a picture of an ambush predator stalking its prey, waiting for the opportune moment to pounce. I can't help but think of like Discovery Channel and African cats, and now you can't either. Sin is crouching, which is to say it's trying to do two things. It's trying to avoid your view, and it's trying to make it seem as if it's smaller than it actually is. Cain's sin is hiding from him, and God's grace is seeking to painfully expose it. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. Grace brings light to darkness, and where there is light, there is life. Cain is convinced that his anger is righteous, or he's so hardened to his criminal act, he can't see it for what it is. And I think this teaches us something about the earliest stages of our rebellion. We see them as innocent, or maybe that's too strong of a word, we see them as neutral, Because, let's face it, in the early stages of our selfishness and our rebellion, we do have some sort of control. Whether you struggle with self-pity, or prejudice, or pride, whether you struggle with greed or addiction, in the very beginnings, you feel as if you do have some power. Well, I can set that down when I need to. Or I don't have to behave like that when I don't want to. But I think this metaphor teaches us something very sobering. 
that the most dangerous flaws that linger in mind in your heart are crouching down even now, presenting themselves as much smaller and less serious than they actually are. You know, I know, that I almost always underestimate my sin. We see this in Greenville. Workaholism is productive. Obsession with your physical beauty is just a means of good grooming and caring for your body. Stinginess with money and time is just prudence and efficiency. Power is now a mark of leadership. Do you see? And then Cain's anger quickly escalates. Notice it only pounces when God says, not doing right. You see, I think we can all relate to this. First, first when, we, when we begin to move in selfish and rebellious ways, we start to do it ourselves, but we find that it begins to cave in on us. We give in, and it begins to consume. Cain's anger was doing just this. It was eating a hole in him. A black hole that literally sucks all of life into it. This is why gossipers tend to be gossiped about. This is why haters tend to be hated and cowards tend to be deserted. People who do anything to be popular are often not. Friends, your unresolved anger toward your parents will destroy you, not them. Your bitterness towards your business partner will sour you. Your jealousy of your friends' connections, popularity, will consume you and not them. Your coveting that house or that vacation will eat you, not your neighbor. Do you see? Our sin poisons us. Paul gets really clear when he even talks about sexual sin. He says it cling, it's, like, it's as if it clings to us. It creates sort of this shadow in our lives. You see, the path to, to moving further away from God is that we become less and less sensitive to the things that used to shock our senses. I don't want you to dwell here, but it might be a good exercise to remember a time in your life, perhaps when you were little, perhaps when you were older, I don't know, when you remember what it felt like to be naive to something. And then after doing something, feeling something, saying something, you crossed a ditch and you remember what it felt like to be left holding the bag. You remember the shame, the, the, the awkwardness, the, man, I just want to hide. Do you remember this? And the older and older we get, apart from God's grace, those calluses continue to grow. Those cataracts continue to build. We cannot see things as they really are. For me, it's fear. I am a chronic people pleaser. I am so afraid of not having approval. And it kills me. I begin to self-soothe and I begin to chase comfort. Do you know the beginnings of your sin? It's a big question. <laughs> it takes the rest of your life to perhaps begin to, to plumb. But by definition, according to this text, that the things in your life right now that can most destroy you are possibly the ones you don't think are bad. Do you see how vulnerable we are apart from God's grace? God isn't fair toward Cain 
or us, he's actually gracious. We don't need a fair God. We need a gracious king. So he first begins to initiate. He, he begins to move gently. Second, as we just talked about, he begins to expose. He begins to show us what's going on within. And finally, he actually saves us. The question I hope you've asked is, why did God accept Abel's offering? Was Abel a good boy and Cain not? Was it because Abel went to church and obeyed his parents? Was it because Cain was lazy and stayed out late partying and cursing morality? No. They both believed in God. They're both talking. Like, they, they both obeyed. They both sacrificed. They both tried to worship him. What was different? I think verse 7 begins to give us some indication. God says, Cain, if you do what is right. I think God is beginning to communicate to Cain that, the, Cain, there is a gap between your life and your heart and your worship. I think this is proven when we consider Abel's sacrifice. We don't hear it directly in this text, but the writer of Hebrews would go on to say that it was by faith that Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. Do you see? Their motives were entirely different. Cain's offering was not less than. Abel's offering was not greater than. The quality of the offering was didn't matter. It was the way that they had moved toward God. Friends, true obedience is faith expressing gratitude. Abel was offering, and he was saying something like, God, thank you. Cain was saying, accept me. And we get a glimpse of this. One of the commentators draws something out that's kind of fun. The, their names are so different. I know we get pretty intentional on in how we name people and our dogs and all of our pets, but not in the same way that ancient people used to name. Like there was a sense in which your name was your destiny, right? And this commentator points out that the name Cain represents or, or, or means uh, someone who's productive and faithful. Abel literally means worthless. Could you imagine naming your kid worthless? But the text screams it. Did you see the joy that, that burst out of Eve's heart when Cain was born? She didn't say anything about Abel. Cain was the apple of his family's eye. He did everything right. He was always at church. He went to everything. He did everything well. And his identity is shattered when his kid brother is accepted and not him. Why didn't Cain say, oh man, you, you finally got it. You finally won something. This is great. Do you see this is the first prodigal boys? Right here. Where is your heart in obedience? Is obedience a burden for you? Stop. Stop. This text shows us that 
Cain's obedience was, was a burden to him. He was desperate for something. He didn't taste grace. Think about Jesus' obedience for a moment. It was the joy of his heart to be completely obedient to his father. He could talk to hard people. He could hang out with the wrong people or the right people and make both of them mad. He could do all of these things. He could take naps when he wanted to. He could work hard when he wanted to. Why? He was so convinced of his father's love for him. He knew he could do nothing to get rid of it. Friends, if obedience is weighing you down, stop. Because you haven't tasted grace. This is why Duke lost to Carolina at the end of the year. (laughs) Those kids can't live up to that. They've got 30 basketball players in the stands. Their coach is, you know, going on this, sorry, any Duke alumni. There's no way. They 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 were playing for the smile In verses 13 to 14, Cain protests God's discipline. Remember, the the point here is that grace begins to actually save. Is it not gracious that faith, not works, would save Abel? Furthermore, in Cain's protest, he says, God, someone will definitely avenge my innocent brother's murder. That's just how the world works, and I get it. If you do this to me, I will definitely be killed. And God says, absolutely not. No way. In verse 15, he's marked. God doesn't mark Cain with fairness. He marks him with grace. God protects and sets apart an unrepentant sinner. His grace actually saved his earthly life. Later, when the final seed of the woman would arrive, God would not be fair again. He would not protect his eternal son. Why? So that his grace would actually protect you. Jesus, may he be the brother we wish Cain was, who actually defends, protects, and is willing to die for his siblings. Indeed, friends, Jesus is the true Abel. He's the better Cain and the true Abel. In Hebrews 12, we see it is Jesus' blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's innocent blood cries for justice. Jesus' innocent blood demands it, achieves it. God was not fair to his son so he could be gracious to you. Unless we forget, it were the Cains that killed this Abel. <laughs> it wasn't the outcasts or the misfits, the diseased, the broken down. No. The Cains of the world killed the true Abel so that the true Abel Jesus could save all the Cains. This is good news, friends. Our God has not been fair to us. He's been gracious to us. He has moved toward us long before we've called his name. And he will. He'll come back before we've asked for him to or long. He is at work. 
He's actually going to do the painful work through your friends, through this church, and through the word of revealing and exposing those lingering outposts of rebellion, just like me. And finally, he is going to actually save. He has. And he will. He will. Our God is not fair, but he is gracious. And his grace isn't free. Right? It, it, it's not a bank account that we draw upon. He didn't let Cain go because he felt kind. Grace is a person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus.